Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. An abundance of proposals. The UK Prime Minister says he wants a Brexit deal. The Irish Prime Minister says he's seen nothing new. A tweet tracker. JP Morgan comes up with an index Volfifi to decipher how the president's tweets move markets. And first move goes crazy for crypto. We begin our series decrypting all things cryptocurrency. It's Monday. Let's make a move. once again to first move this Monday. I hope you had a very relaxing weekend because this week is set to be anything but. Whether it's central banks, whether it's data, presidential tweets potentially too, there's a lot coming up. Right now, let me give you a look at what we're seeing for US majors at this moment. We're in the green, poised to add to the gains of, uh, what, one and a half percent or more last week. It was the first two-week winning streak for stocks, in fact, since July of this year. Remember, for all the recession fears, we are now less than two percent away from record highs on these U.S. majors. We're up some 19 percent on the S&P 500 since the start of this year. And we're even up six percent from the start of last December's swoon, if you remember, the worst month of trade since the Great Depression. It's all about central bankers right now. And we've got the European Central Bank up this week. Mario Draghi expected to announce his last big stimulus push before he exits stage left. So watch, I think, for a bit of disappointment potentially there. We've also got the Federal Reserve following next week, a rate cut of a quarter of a percentage point is assumed. I guess the question remains, will they do more? We could also ask the same question of China, of course, too. Fresh data this weekend showing Chinese imports falling yet again. Take a look at the export numbers, though. The exports to the United States falling 16% year over year. Trade war, anyone? China's central bank taking measures to stimulate the economy aimed at boosting lending this time around. But again, the expectation is that they do more. That hope certainly helped support Chinese stocks overnight. The Shanghai Composite now up some 3.5% over the past five sessions alone. But elsewhere, of course, hope for a solution on Brexit is another thing entirely. And that's where we're going to kick off the drivers. So let's get to it. The British Prime Minister looking, hoping to break the Brexit deadlock. The Boris Johnson's government expected to push again today for an early election. But in what's going to be a pretty busy day for the Prime Minister overall, earlier he was in Dublin for talks to resolve the backstop border situation between Ireland and Northern Ireland. However, he declined to share with the media and the Irish, it seems, what proposals he's actually got. Listen in. 
there are a, a, an abundance of uh, proposals that we have, but I just don't think, if, you, if, if I may say so, I think it's entirely uh, reasonable to share them with you uh, today, Carl. We will be producing uh, ideas for our friends and partners, not least here in Dublin, about how to take this forward. In the absence of agreed alternative arrangements, uh, no backstop is no deal uh, for us. Uh, all it does is kick the can down the road for another 14 months, uh, another 14 months of uncertainty for business, another 14 months uh, of uncertainty for people north and south of the border. So that's not, not an option that we find attractive at all. Bia joins us from Westminster. Bia, I have to say, if he's got an abundance of proposals, now is the time to share them. It follows a dramatic weekend with Amber Rudd, the Work and Pensions Secretary, stepping down because she said she believes this government only wants a no-deal exit here. What is the message from this government? Well, you're right. Now is the hour to come forward with these proposals. And Boris Johnson hinted in the press conference at what that might be. He said they would be around trying to somehow remove the backstop and he mentioned facilitation like those trusted trader schemes we've heard him speak about numerous times and he also talked about an, an agri-foods area for the United Kingdom and for Ireland but as the Varadka underscored he hasn't seen concrete proposals yet and that's a message that we keep hearing from the European Union but Boris Johnson remained optimistic he said that a deal was his priority he thought a deal could be found he said which is a fairly unpopular opinion that there's just the right amount of time to strike a deal, despite the fact now, Julia, that we learn that Parliament is going to be prorogued today, which means it's going to be returning on the 14th of October. Now, that's just five days before his deadline, where he has to write to the European Union and ask for an extension, something he has promised time and time again he is never going to do. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? And the expectation is they vote today mm. to try and hold fresh elections. He needs a two-third majority. He's not expected to get mm. it. There was also rumours over the weekend that perhaps he could not abide by the law asking for that extension and, and ruling out a no-deal exit. I mean, are we even looking at a situation here where that may happen? Or is that just rumour, speculation and mm. threats here that won't be fulfilled? Well, it's remarkable, isn't it? The Foreign Secretary had to address this on the Sunday news shows in the United Kingdom as to whether or not Boris Johnson would be prepared to go to prison to fight for his Brexit deadline. Now, the Conservative Party is traditionally the party of law and order in the United Kingdom, and all this speculation is happening while the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, was addressing a conference of policemen and speaking to them this morning. So the contrast, the dichotomies are so stark at the moment. As for whether or not Boris Johnson would do that as a last resort, it's something which a lot of people are whispering about in Westminster, it would obviously be a very extreme position to take. For the, for the time being, the government have said that they are going to test the law to its limit, that they will respect the law. And we can be sure, Julia, that if there was ever any inkling that Boris Johnson might be planning on doing that, then he would be met with strong legal challenges from the same cast of characters that we've seen challenge him time and time again, such as the former Attorney General Dominic Grieve and others. But for now, uh, Downing Street is certainly not suggesting that Boris Johnson would, would take that approach, but he has said that he's not willing to extend that deadline. And despite the fact that Parliament has now legislated that he will have to ask for an extension as to avoid no deal, he still doesn't seem willing to accept that. So something's got to give at some point, Julia.
just wondering if you've ever had a British Prime Minister arrested on the job, and I'm only half joking here. Birgitta Bilo, thank you yeah. so much for that. Unprecedented times indeed, and unprecedented change, in fact, in Saudi Arabia, which is our next driver, a new energy minister over there, one that comes this time from the royal family. John Defterius joins us now from Abu Dhabi. John, you have been speaking to the new face there at the energy ministry. Talk us through what was he saying about this? Well, at the World Energy Congress, so his first full day on the job as Minister of Energy, uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman, the half-brother of the Crown Prince, and the older brother kept his cards very close to his vest, not using the laser gun that we've gotten so used to, Julia, with Khalid al-Fali. But listen very carefully to this one-on-one -on -one doorstep I had with him, and then the other reporters kind of swarmed in when he said that Saudi Arabia is not going to be the only one carrying the can going forward in the OPEC non-OPEC alliance. He wants a coherent policy, but he left out the option here. Everybody has to participate. Let's take a listen. This is my first day. I think I would uh, like to gain the benefit of the presence of uh, so many of my colleagues uh, today and uh, in the next couple of days. I will be able to have a much better, more uh, uh, focused view of how uh, even also there are so many representatives of the industry here, one could also benefit from their presence to talk to them about the market. Craig, can I ask you something there? Are you gonna be a, is there going to be a sharp departure from current policy? That's what everybody wants to know you after know, such I, a radical move with Minister Al-Faleh, who you know very, very well. You know, it's, there is nothing radical in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we all are uh, civil servants. We work for the government. And we fulfill our duties, and one person come and one person go. And at the end of the day, we serve our cause and our purpose. The clear and present concern is whether you change the OPEC, non-OPEC alliance and see deeper cuts needed because of a global well, slowdown? As I said earlier, I, I'm here. I'm a good listener, as you know me. <laughs> so I'd like to use and make you know, use the benefit or benefit from the presence of my colleagues, uh -huh. talk to them, and then formulate my opinion uh, based on what I hear from everybody. So no abrupt change is what you're suggesting, you know, though? We have always worked for a cohesive, coherent, collective effort within OPEC and non-OPEC. As you know, John, we've spent a lot of time, our with myself or many of the ministers that preceded me in making sure that the producers get together, work together, and prosper together. Okay, thanks very much. But the OPEC alliance, the OPEC alliance does survive, though, with non-OPEC. You're not uh, well, abandoning that. With the will of everybody, yes, it will survive. Will of everybody will survive, but it was the will of Khalid al-Fale, Julia, Many times you'd see him at an OPEC, not OPEC meeting, he would buttonhole a minister and say, you need to get in line. This is a different message. You need to get in line because Saudi Arabia is not going to be the only one cutting a million barrels a day and carrying the full weight of this alliance. Yeah, hardball set to be played. Fascinating. What about being more in line with MBS over a future Aramco IPO, though? Because that was my first thought on this, JD. What do we think here? And I think... Well, I think your instincts were correct because Khalid al-Fali was never a huge fan 
of the Aramco IPO, but particularly he thought that valuation of $2 trillion was lofty. I heard it from a number of different sources, but one international oil company CEO told me privately today, Saudi Arabia has a problem. If they don't want to continue cutting to hold up the price of oil, uh, they do need a price of at least $70 for the IPO. So it's a difficult position for Prince Abdulaziz. Secondarily, we're hearing leaks now that they may go with a Riyadh listing. Initially, with perhaps J.P. Morgan uh, leading with NCB of Saudi Arabia, maybe Morgan Stanley. Uh, push it through on the Riyadh Stock Exchange, maybe pick Tokyo. Not something like New York, where the litigation is a big worry. So they're pushing forward with the IPO. That's the message here, Julia, with further details yeah. to come. Yeah, are you credible in saying that you're not going to be the only one supporting prices here when you know you need a higher price in order to do the IPO? Hmm. John Defterius, thank you mm. so much for joining us there mm. from Abu Dhabi. All right, let's move on to our next driver now. With nearly 100% of British Airways flights cancelled as British pilots strike overpay. Anna Stewart is in London. What do the pilots want here? And that sounds like a lot of disruption. A lot of disruption. It's going to be very expensive. Apparently, three days will equal around $150 million for the airline in lost revenue, but also rebooking all those flights and all those travel arrangements. Now, what do they want? They want money. It's a traditional old school sort of strike. Pilots want, want more money. But Julia, what's interesting about this strike? Firstly, did you know British Airways pilots have never actually been on strike before? That surprised me. Secondly, it's the amount of money we're talking about. This is caught some people's attention. So a BA uh, captain pilot, they earn currently $200,000 on average a year. With the 11.5% salary increase that BA have offered but has been rejected, that would take their salary to $250,000 a year. Now, the first officer, which is slightly lower down, they currently earn around $110,000 a year. So already quite a lot. Now, from the other side of things, that's the BA stance. The other side of things, Balpa, the union representing these pilots, say, listen, the pilots took huge pay cuts after the financial crisis. BA is huge profits now. Management's getting paid a lot. It's time these guys got more money. So they have rejected any calls for the 11.5% increase over three years. They're going to sit this one out. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I don't know how I feel about this. These guys are responsible for hundreds of people's lives every day in the safe travel across the globe. I'm kind of in favour of more pay, even if it hurts the business. What happens if they don't get what they want because they've got more strike days planned? So we've got the strike today, we've got the strike tomorrow, and then we have another strike that's currently planned for September 27th. Now, there's always mm. time for talks in between there, and I've spoken to British Airways this morning because Balpa, the union, said they tried to arrange a meeting last Wednesday, and they never heard back. Now, there's some dispute over that. British Airways saying they are always open for constructive talks, but talks that do not have conditions attached. So some disagreement there. Of course, this could all get fixed, but I'm not quite sure how. It looks at the moment like the pilots are not going to budge, but this is very expensive. Of $150 million if all three strike days take place. And Julia, it's not just the strike days that you have to be worried about, and you know, passengers that they're planning to travel BA must call the airline before they go to the airport, but it's also the days that follow because crews and planes will all be in the wrong places, like a usual sort of airline disruption. This could go on for a few days. Yes, they have my sympathy right now, but if I get caught in that, I'm not sure how long that sympathy will last. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the globe.
The number of people known to have been killed by Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas has now risen to 45, with local officials saying it will go much higher. Hundreds are still missing, and nearly 70,000 people have lost their homes. Many are desperately trying to leave the islands, only to be turned back. This is what passengers on board a ferry headed to the United States heard on Sunday. In case you couldn't hear that, the loudspeaker announcement called on anyone without a U.S. visa to disembark or they would, quote, will have a problem. A powerful typhoon in Japan has left one million households without power and forced airlines to ground more than 100 flights. It made landfall at the coastal city of Chiba, bringing heavy rain and winds of up to 190 kilometers per hour. South Korea says four crew members of a cargo ship are missing after it began listing heavily off the coast of the U.S. state of Georgia. The U.S. Coast Guard is now trying to find them. The other 20 people on board were removed before fire forced rescuers to stop. All right, coming up on First Move. Crypto crazy first move. Kicking off a week of cryptocurrency coverage by going back to blockchain basics and making Kafifi great again. JP Morgan launches an index to measure the impact of every Trump tweet. If you're confused, don't worry. We'll explain that later on in the show. Stay with us. We're back in two. first move live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and a look at today's boardroom brief. We're shaking it up a little bit today. Apple's admitted one of its Chinese supplier factories broke rules on working conditions. The company says it's trying to correct the problem. It was alleged the Foxconn plant imposed forced overtime, didn't pay bonuses and illegally hired workers. Apple said most of the allegations are false, while Foxconn found some compliance issues but no evidence of forced labor. Trade war, anyone? Japanese automaker Nissan has ousted its CEO, saying an internal investigation revealed misconduct over executive pay. Hiroto Sakawa last week admitted to Japanese media that he'd received higher bonuses than he was entitled to. Sakawa became CEO after Carlos Ghosn was arrested last year on accusations of financial misconduct. Shares of AT&T in focus, they're up over 5% in pre-market trading. The activist fund, Elliott Management, says it has accumulated a stake of 3.3% in the telecoms giant and is pushing to restructure the business. AT&T, of course, is the owner of CNN. All right, let me give you a look now at U.S. futures this morning, too. It does look like we're on track for a higher open. Stocks beginning the week at their highest level since late July, in fact, on hopes for upcoming U.S.-China trade talks and fresh global stimulus. Deutsche Bank now believes that the Fed will lower rates by a full percentage point over the next four meetings. In the meantime, reports say China is offering to buy more U.S. agricultural goods to help reach a trade deal if the United States makes concessions of its own. All right, there's a lot going on. Uh, joining us now, Krishnan Mamani, he's Vice Chairman of Investments at Invesco. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for Happy having me. Happy Monday. Yep. There is a lot going on this week. What should we focus on first? European Central Bank actually feels very pivotal this week too. I think ECB uh, and what they do with respect to their quantitative easing program is probably front and center for everyone involved in the markets. What are you expecting from them? A, a, a depot rate cut 
right. maybe roughly 20 basis points and a future restart of the quantitative easing program, maybe 20, 30 billion euros of purchases of securities on a monthly basis. Wow, so the European Central Bank back to buying Indeed. assets Indeed. again, Indeed. 20 to 30 billion euros worth a month easing. A month. Indeed not happening immediately happening at some point in the future yeah because they need to set up the logistics of doing that sort of a program define what they're going to buy so all of that takes a bit of time but i think this is a good opportunity for them to actually go out and announce it is this a good thing well, so, you know, good thing or bad thing is in the eye of the beholder, right? A necessary now, thing. But it is a necessary thing because the European economy is certainly slowing down. And without this, they will probably have a recession in, in Europe. And uh, the, the, real, the real activity should be on the fiscal front. But there is no appetite for doing anything on the fiscal front for by uh, German politicians. So this is the only game in town we have. You know, it's interesting. And you wrote a great blog this week saying, you know, hang on a second. We shouldn't be hammering the central banks for doing effectively what they have to do here, which is try and support the economy and prevent a more material slowdown in the absence of politicians and, and actual governments doing more to support the economies themselves. Absolutely. The people who can make a world of difference are the politicians on the fiscal front. But because there is really no movement whatsoever, central banks have no choice but to take the leadership position with respect to taking policy action to revive the various economies. The obvious response to that would be actually not many, not many of these countries, particularly in Europe, have the room, have the capacity to spend. One country that clearly does is Germany and yes. doesn't do it. Does that change, do you think? Well, so I think Germany has the most amount of uh, fiscal room to do something really creative and given the size of their economy, that will have a meaningful impact on all of Europe. However, no action whatsoever. And at the same time, they lambast the European Central Bank for doing more to stimulate the economy. It's nonsensical. We could talk about this in the next 30 minutes. I want to talk about the Federal Reserve, too, because you're also one of those that thinks that they cut rates in September, they cut rates in October, and they cut rates in December. Why? Well, so for two reasons. One, the economic environment on a global basis continues to slow. And despite what you will see on the inflation front, this week on the CPI, yes. uh, I, I think the e inflation picture is looking much more subdued uh, because of uh, so some softening in uh, uh, in the labor market. So as a result, they have plenty of room and uh, there's no significant downside to them cutting rates. If you go back, 2018 Fed tightening of the magnitude that they did was a policy mistake and they effectively have to uh, unwind. unwind that. I think if you think about it that way, it makes perfect sense. What about doing a half a percentage point cut in September? Does that make sense, even if they can't get the votes for it? Yeah, well, so I, I think if they, if they really wanted to jumpstart things, that's what they would, uh, they should probably do. But should and would are two different things, uh, because there's not enough of a consensus within the committee for them to be cutting rates by 50 basis points in one vote. This way, they remain data dependent. So they cut 25, and if the economy, everything is okay, they cut another 25 and another 25 in December. Which arguably is the message that they should be giving and just sticking to it. We're just watching the data. But what we've basically painted here is a picture of stimulus everywhere. Yes. China. Yes. The Federal Reserve here in the United States, the European Central Bank potentially buying bonds again. 
Is this a reason to buy risk assets? Oh, absolutely. So coming into 2019, that had been our thesis. When we came out and said there'll probably be five more years of economic growth, it was based on the fact that growth is moderating on a global basis. And therefore, policymakers, in absence of inflation, will be far more stimulative and therefore can manufacture outcomes that are going to be good for risk markets. So for all the recession fears that we're talking about in the United States, the slowdown in manufacturing, do we get a trade deal or don't we? You say, don't worry, because fortunately or unfortunately, the central banks are going to stimulate to support. There is a real slowdown in the manufacturing sector. But for the U.S., uh, consumption is 70% of the economy. Right. So as long as labor markets, income growth, consumption remains good, we are not going to have a recession. Hopefully, the stimulus revives the manufacturing sector. We certainly need a trade deal. Without a trade deal, the pressure would still be on the, this particular sector. So uh, hopefully, that comes to some sort of a resolution as well. Krishna, always fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Krishna Mamani there, of course, Vice Chairman of Investments at Invesco. We are counting down to the market open. Plenty more to come. We'll take a look at some of our global movies. And, of course, we're crypto crazy this week, too. So stick around. We're back after this with the market open. was the opening bell here live from the New York Stock Exchange. As expected, a higher open for stocks. Wow, an excitable start to the trading week as well. I can barely hear myself talk. The first full week of trading, of course, for September here on Wall Street. It can be a rough one for stocks, but so far this month, the majors are up, what, some 1.5% or more. That despite the recessionary concerns in the manufacturing sector, the weak factory data, and Friday, slightly softer read on jobs, though I will point out, still solid. We've got big U.S. banks updating investors on the outlook for uh, profits and profitability this week. as low interest rates, of course, pressure results. The uh, We're looking for the banks to tweak expectations lower perhaps also interesting to see what their outlook is on the economy more broadly too the 10-year yield a touch higher today currently sitting at some 1.6 percent so plenty to come this week as we've already discussed but in the short term let's go back to brexit the uk parliament set for another future election debate. If you think you've seen it all before, well, you're not wrong. With a no, no deal and a no early election already decided by Parliament, you've got to wonder where the Prime Minister can go from here. John Longworth joins us now from Westminster. He's a Brexit Party MEP and former Director General of the British Chamber of Commerce. John, fantastic to have you with us. I'll ask you that question. Where can the Prime Minister go from here and, and how do you rate his handling of the situation since taking the leadership role? Well, I think he's been totally committed to some form of Brexit since he was made Prime Minister. I think he made a serious error in not talking out the bill in the House of Lords. Uh, it still remains to be seen exactly why that happened. Uh, obviously, people are saying that it's because there was a deal to have a general election, but if that's the case, he's been fooled on that. Uh, I think he's actually somewhat boxed in at the moment, and the only things he can possibly do are to either uh, go back on what he said and extend, or to actually ignore the legislation that's coming through. Of course, this is a treaty matter, 
and has uh, Crown prerogative. So as the executive, there is an argument for saying that he could ignore it. After all, what judge is going to put the British Prime Minister in jail for supporting a majority vote of the British people and asking for a general election? Interestingly, I asked this question on air earlier. I was only half joking about the prospect of uh, the British Prime Minister being arrested here. What's ultimately best for the country here, best for business? Because this is the angle that, that you always take here, and you're one of the first, and a key representative of British business saying, actually, you believe leaving is the best option. Do you agree that leaving with no deal can still be the best option here? A clean break Brexit is now the best option without a shadow of a doubt because it provides the maximum freedom for the UK government to boost the economy and for, for businesses to take advantage of the opportunities that Brexit affords. Uh, uh, most importantly of all, of course, many businesses up and down the country, even those that voted remain, business people that voted remain, are saying let's just get it done because actually it's the uncertainty that's the problem. I mean, there's a massive boost waiting for the economy the moment that we actually leave and we need to get on and do that are they actually saying let's get it done without a deal though i mean i appreciate that everyone wants an end to the uncertainty here but if the end to the uncertainty involves having no real certainty about what the future looks like is that really what they're asking for here is that really what brexiteers voted for too Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, there were only two things on the ballot paper. There was remain and there was leave. He never said anything about a deal on the ballot paper. Uh, Brexiteers are absolutely hoping for uh, a, a clean break Brexit because that's actually what they voted for. But remain business people that I know are completely fed up of the uncertainty that not Brexiting creates. In fact, being very clear that we are having a clean break Brexit provides absolute certainty because people know exactly where they stand then and can prepare for it appropriately. You were one of those that was advising the, the Prime Minister to go to Geneva, go and talk to the World Trade Organization and understand what the options are. Do you think he took your advice hmm. and actually understands what his options are as far as falling back on World Trade Organization rules are concerned? Because for me, this is pretty vital. Hmm. Well, there are many people in the government who, who do understand what WTO means, and there are people in the government who are dissembling, even within the cabinet now, who are trying to undermine the idea of a WTO Article 24 standstill, for example. The reason I said that you should go to the WTO before going to Berlin or Paris or Brussels is first of all to send a clear signal that Britain intends to leave, come what may, and also to have a proper understanding. Because WTO can help to facilitate things, and the real facilitation, of course, takes place between the EU and the UK, and it requires the EU to want to play ball on an Article 24 standstill. But believe me, the moment we leave in a clean break Brexit, the minds of European countries will be concentrated on a free trade arrangement. I have no doubt about that. Yeah, the threat that they won't, though, is a, a valid threat at this point, with so much uncertainty at this stage. I mean, what we've seen and what we're expecting to see from Parliament... Well, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure out. I... Go on. I was just saying, I'm not sure I agree with you on that, you see, because one of, the, one of the fallacies that people have in relation to this business of having trade deals is that they're absolutely essential. 
the things that the economy can do to boost are entirely independent of trade deals. We can unilaterally remove external tariffs, which provides either the UK government with a fund to boost industry or reduces the cost of living, thus boosting the economy. We can maintain tariffs where we think it's necessary to boost British industry. For example, if we have tariffs on finished automobiles, German cars will end up being 25% more expensive than they were in 2016. People will buy British cars as a consequence. Manufacturing in Britain will boom. We can actually also adjust taxes using the nine billion net contribution that we will get back. We'll have a 39 billion pound fund to boost the economy through uh, business support mechanisms and also through provision of better infrastructure. You know, that's a bigger number than we spent after World War II in the Marshall Plan in today's money. It's huge. Oh. John, the EU says some of that money's owed. We're going to have to continue this conversation because I have to finish it here, but there's plenty more to discuss, and I promise you we will. John Longworth there joining us from Westminster Brexit Party MEP. Always a pleasure to talk to you, sir, and we shall reconvene. OK, we're taking a break here on First Move. Plenty more to come. Stay with us. Welcome to First Moves at Crypto Crazy Week, where we begin with some good old-fashioned myth-busting. Cryptocurrencies are so-called because they are digitally encrypted assets, but as a currency that's hard to decipher, the name is fitting for that reason too. To unravel some of the most common misconceptions, I talked to Luke Martin, the founder of Coinist Research, an independent cryptocurrency analysis company. He began by addressing what he sees as one of the biggest. I think the biggest thing that still gets brought up and, and maybe is misunderstood or not known is how well Bitcoin has done. Even this year, a lot of people still think that everyone's underwater on the Bitcoin they bought. There's only been maybe three months, I think at the end of 2017 up until January of 2018, that Bitcoin traded higher than where it is today. And we hit 13K earlier this year um, and have 3X nearly in value. So there's still this stigma that everyone is underwater when in fact it's been the best performing asset for five years, three years and this year. I mean, that's fascinating, isn't it? I guess some part of that is the sheer volatility and it depends where as an investor you got in here because you could have bought high and sold low, unfortunately. But your point is if you look over a, a longer period of time, you're still up. Certainly. I mean, there was a very small window where, yes, if you did buy the top somewhere between November and, and early January of 2018, then yes, you're definitely underwater. But I think that gets overblown and, and it also kind of keeps investors from getting into an asset that's been uncorrelated to other assets and has also performed as well. We'll come back to that yeah. lack of correlation. Volumes. One of the key questions we got asked was, look, explain the volumes here. Are the volumes fake? Yep. Volumes... It's a bit of a gray area because reports come out, Bitwise did an excellent report where they covered and said all of the volume is fake or most of the reported volume is fake. And that might be true based on reported volume, but there is a lot of real volume as well. I talked to a trading team, Alameda Research, out of Asia, which does billions in volume every single day, and they do more volume than even Bitwise said was happening on some of these exchanges. So there's a large amount of real volume and also a large amount of reported fake volume. Um, there is a lot of things happening here. Reporting is, is maybe the tough part. The Gemini twins, I remember going back to, what was it, 2013, and they said that they're at least 1% of the Bitcoin market, and everyone went, whoa, the Bitcoin whales. What percentage still dominated by big players, perhaps, versus the broader retail participation that we see right now? Sure, whales still make up a good portion of the market. They will. Right? How good? 
It's hard to say. It's hard to quantify, right? That's what, that's what makes the reporting part so tough. But it's still also a very retail-driven market as well, right? A lot of Wall Street and other institutions just can't get in due to operational risk or regulatory risk. And that's what makes retail uh, make up such a large percentage of the market. Another thing that's thrown around. It's used by criminals. It's used to launder money, perhaps more so than US dollars, for example, which we could cite as an example yeah. here too. What's your response to that? My response to that is the U.S. dollar has been the choice by criminals and money launderers for as long as it's been around. If you look at Bitcoin, since it is, it is pseudonymous, right? My name isn't attached to an address, but it's a publicly transparent ledger. And as justice departments and criminals alike are finding, if you hack an exchange or if you are money laundering or whatever it might be, you can actually track that address. Every single transaction is recorded permanently forever. It's traceable. It's traceable, correct. So let's say a criminal does try to launder money or does steal money from an exchange. You or I or, or a chain analysis firm could look at that address, blacklist it, and then eventually when they do want to on or off their money on an on and off ramp, like Coinbase or Gemini here in, the, in New York, uh, it's not possible, right? Because you can actually trace it. With dollars, not so much. It's, it's uh, a lot harder to do with Bitcoin. Yeah, look out for that suitcase. You said the magic word there, hack. And that's one of the things, actually, that I get thrown at me by um, more traditional analysts, I have to say, that aren't crypto specialists. And they say, look, crypto can be hacked here. And I think we have to distinguish between what's being hacked, whether it's the exchange or whether it's the currency itself. Sure. Yeah, this gets brought up so much. The easiest analogy is a bank robbery to a bank. That doesn't make you question the legitimacy of the fiat currency system or banks in general. Uh, when a centralized third party has a security and vulnerability, let's say Binance gets hacked, right? It's not, it has nothing to do with the Bitcoin network or the Bitcoin software or Bitcoin itself being hacked. It's a business or a centralized third party being hacked. And the revolution with Bitcoin that people don't bring up when they talk about hacks is since it is a d digital bearer asset, you can actually control your coins. You control the keys, you control the coins. So you can mitigate that risk as an investor, uh, as an institutional investor as well, as Coinbase and Zappo are coming into the game. The other thing I get is rolled eyes. Explain what a cold wallet is and this idea that the cryptocurrency itself is not actually held at the exchange. So even if the exchange is hacked... The crypto's held separately. Explain a cold wallet. Yeah, exactly. So let's say you do have your exchange, your, your coins on an exchange like Coinbase or Gemini here in New York. You can withdraw those coins to a device that looks like a USB device, or you can keep a seed phrase in your head. Uh, so you can actually store these assets digitally, which wasn't possible before Bitcoin. Uh, you can mitigate against that risk of a hack or, or trusting any other centralized third party. Why do we keep talking about Bitcoin, by the way? Because another criticism we get is, look, there's other currencies out there, Ethereum, Ripple. What's the, the relevance of, of Bitcoin as a proportion of the market, perhaps, in crypto? Yeah, so Bitcoin right now makes up, I believe it's close to 70% of the total market cap of all crypto assets. Wow. Yeah, and, and the reason being is Bitcoin has established itself as a clear value prop, as kind of that digital scarcity or that digital gold, a store of value. And a lot of other currencies, it's still early. There are crypto assets that are interesting, Ethereum and, and NFTs and different things like that. It's just still very very early, they're kind of fighting for that use case. So what about further dilution? More and more cryptocurrencies get launched. Libra, an example, of course, from yeah. um, Facebook just in the last couple of months or so. Yeah, that's the other side of this equation is since Bitcoin has established itself as the store of value, as digital scarcity, there will only be 21 million coins. All these other coins that cost nothing to uh, produce increases the supply of other coins. And, and Libra doesn't do anything. It's, it's really just kind of a basket of other fiat currencies. It shouldn't be even 
put really in the same category as Bitcoin. We have to separate the two Correct. things, completely different things. One of the other things I think that people look at the price right now of Bitcoin and go, I've missed it, it's too expensive. People need to understand that if they want to invest, they can take a piece of a Bitcoin yes. and not a full. You can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin, yes. You can buy as one sat is actually the smallest denomination we'll go to. So you can buy one sat, which is point you know, zero eights and then one uh, sat of a Bitcoin, yeah. Talk about transaction costs. Transaction costs. So this gets overblown a lot as well. If you want to send a Bitcoin to me or, or to one of your friends or whoever it might be, to be included in the next block, which would happen in about 10 minutes, it only costs 83 cents or a dollar. Uh, so transaction costs are actually much lower than a lot of maybe competing coins will make you believe. Um, and also you have to consider that the average transaction size of a lot of Bitcoin transactions are much higher than a typical credit card transaction or a, a typical cash transaction. So actually as well. it's lowering the cost. Correct. Transaction costs Correct. here. What about regulation? If we see broader regulation, whether that's of exchanges or announcements of crypto to some degree, because the decentralized nature here is arguably one of the selling points too, does that help or hinder? I don't think there's a bad thing with regulation as long as it's not stifling innovation. Uh, there are some negative side effects of this, of you know, users or, or uh, residents in New York or some parts of the United States aren't able to buy or trade certain cryptocurrencies. Uh, but as long as it's aimed at helping or protecting retail investors, I think that's a good thing. We're already seeing it with on and off ramps with Gemini here in New York or Coinbase as well. Okay, final question here, yeah. and then we will get you back. Is Bitcoin ready to be a safe haven buy at this stage? Yeah, so there's been a lot of talk about Bitcoin acting as a safe haven lately. And while correlations have increased, it is trading more in line with gold. And, and we are starting to see, you know, as equities decrease, maybe, maybe Bitcoin and gold doing well on the back end of that. I'm not so sure you can draw that conclusion yet. If you look longer than just this year, the correlation on a relative scale is still pretty much uncorrelated to, to everything. And that's actually a good thing. It's still providing positive returns uncorrelated to other assets, which is kind of a dream asset for a lot of investors. So there's an argument here to have it as a little piece of your broader portfolio, even if it's not a safe haven in your mind here. Exactly. In some ways, it's actually reducing the risk of your total portfolio and earning you those returns. Yeah. The lack of correlation with other assets. Luke, a pleasure. We'll get you back. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So that was Luke Martin, the founder of Coinist Research. Stay with us on Crypto Week because tomorrow we'll be speaking to Ben Mesrich. He's the author of the book Bitcoin Billionaires, a true story of genius, betrayal and redemption. It's about the Winklevoss twins, the founders of the Gemini Exchange. That's coming up tomorrow. All right, still ahead. Anyone for Kofifi? Well, something is brewing at JP Morgan. And you can thank President Trump's Twitter feed for that. If you're confused, don't worry. We'll explain next. Welcome back to First Move. It was the tweet that launched a thousand theories. What did President Trump mean by the word Kofifi? Well, we're still no closer to finding out because he never corrected himself. But now JP Morgan Chase is paying tribute with its very own Volfifi index, which is designed to reflect how the president's tweets move markets. Claire Sebastian has more on this. It was clearly an autocorrect typo. I blame that, Claire. But talk us through <laughs> JP Morgan's Volfifi. 
Right, Julia, you know, you and I have been talking about this for months now. We know that the president's tweets can move markets. We've seen it happen on a practically a day-to-day -day basis. But JP Morgan is now trying to quantify this. They've created a model that tries to spot market-moving tweets and can track their impact going forward. That is what Vol Fefe, uh, as they've somewhat uh, brilliantly, frankly, called it. Uh, that's what that does. And their findings are interesting. They say that it's statistically significant uh, that tweets are moving markets. Secondly, they're finding uh, that the volume of market moving tweets has ballooned uh, in the last few months, particularly uh, in August. And the topics, perhaps this is not surprising, because the topics uh, that particularly move the markets are trade uh, and monetary policy. They found the most market moving words within the tweets. Take a look at them. These are the top five, Julia. Uh, they're China, billion, products, Democrats. Great. You really get a sense uh, of the kinds of, of particularly trade related tweets that have been moving the market. So that is significant. But they really go deep into the weeds uh, of the president's Twitter feed, Julia. They, they say that you can pretty much set your watch by it. They say uh, that this is a quote. The president's Twitter activity displays some strong intraday cyclicals. While tweets can and will arrive at any hour of the day, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern time is the most likely window, a time fortuitously coterminous with some of the best intraday liquidity in U.S. rate markets. They're specifically looking at the impact of the tweets on volatility in the rates market studio, but they say that it can be applied also to currencies and equities. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? We joke around, but there is a serious matter here. And when it's policy, like tariffs being enacted over Twitter, it's, it's become a real problem. Um, some of the other things for me, though, that were quite fascinating, they judge when he presumably sleeps, which is between 5 a.m. and 10 a.m. Eastern time, because that's simply when there's far less tweets than the rest of the time of day. That's not enough sleep. It's, it's not enough sleep, plus he misses the market open by that uh, measure, Julia. So, yeah, there's a lot of detail in this. I think there are a couple of interesting points to make. They do say uh, that, uh, that, that, that there is a potential uh, variable here that's hard to quantify, and that's the feedback loop. There are sometimes more presidential tweets when the market is volatile, so he can react to that as well. But they do say that while this is causing clearly anxiety in the markets, this does, uh, the volume of these tweets, the fact that we get to see, frankly, the sausage being made, the inner workings of the executive branch on Twitter provides an unprecedented mm. opportunity to look at and to study the impact uh, of the executive branch and their, their daily uh, machinations on, uh, on the stock markets and the rates market. So I think that yes. is super interesting here. But we do have to point out as well that despite all this intraday and intramonth volatility, the S&P 500 is still up more than 30% since Trump's inauguration. Such a great point. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. A great point to note there. All right, let me give you a quick look at what we're seeing for US markets at this moment. We are adding to those gains that Claire just mentioned there, as you can see, holding in positive territory. We'll be back in a couple of hours with The Express on all of these stories with the latest. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 